Welcome to Deep North. Today we're speaking with editor Greta Sirur Enerstotter on her article for the latest issue of Iceland Review on the uphill battle for equality in the workplace and technology's latest solutions. Making it work. Someone recently tweeted about a relatively young Icelandic tech company that had just gotten a large investment. When someone jokingly replied, asking where a woman could go to find such a large sum of money, the jesting tone was lost on the original tweeter, who replied that investments like this are the result of years of hard work, something that many men and women can and do earn. It's a nice thought, isn't it? Except that it's mostly men. In 2022, a report found that women-led teams accounted for 1.1% of companies that received funding from venture capital funds. And listener, if you, like me, hope that that number is so low because most of the teams are mixed, I regret to inform you that mixed teams received just over 10% of the funds. 88.7% of VC funding goes to all male teams of founders. It's been 43 years since Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda and Dolly Parton solved the equality issue in the seminal film 9 to 5. But somehow we constantly find ourselves running into the same old stumbling blocks and even some new and unexpected ones. Venture capital investments are only a tiny fraction of the business world, but they are indicative of a larger issue. No matter how you slice it, women still aren't on equal footing with men in the workplace. Despite the situation, plenty of things have changed since 1980, including attitudes towards inequality as an issue. Women are a much larger part of the workforce, and they're putting in the effort to change the game. Pay Analytics founder Margaret Bjarnadóttir has a background in operation research. Her PhD focused on how we can use data and mathematical models to support decision-making. When a COO at an Icelandic bank complained about the lack of resources to close the pay gap where they worked, Margaret was the right person to hear them at the right time. Two years earlier, the bank had realized the extent of their pay gap and vowed to make changes. Their goal was to incorporate gender equality into all hiring processes and promotions. When they assessed progress at the end of those two years, nothing had changed. For Margaret, this was the perfect research opportunity, and she created her prototype of a mathematical model that would not only analyze the extent of the pay gap, taking into account different positions and responsibilities, but also provide the solution to closing the gap. When her calculations worked, providing the bank with the tools they needed to implement change, the foundation was laid for pay analytics. Today, the company has clients in more than 50 countries, the largest of which comprises hundreds of thousands of employees worldwide. Since its beginnings in 2016, when the idea for pay analytics won the entrepreneurial competition Gutlegith, Margaret has found the conversation regarding the pay gap is changing rapidly. When we were starting out, she tells me, we needed to explain to investors that there were companies that needed this kind of service, but we don't anymore. There's been an avalanche of rules and regulations all over the world 
requiring companies to measure pay gaps and release the results. They differ from country to country, but in the EU, for instance, when you advertise a position, you will soon be required to also advertise the pay range. When the percentage of VC funding allocated to women-led teams comes up, Margaret nods sympathetically. While acknowledging that every company's trajectory is different, she recognizes the stories of investors asking defensive questions and focusing on risks rather than potential successes when talking to women. By now I can send the guys out to investor meetings, she states jokingly, referring to the CEO and the CFO of her company. On a more serious note, she continues, The pay gap and lack of investment in female-led companies come from the same root, implicit bias. We all have it, and it taints our decision-making, Margaret adds. Her approach is to fight bias with data. Documentation also helps, such as writing down why people get races. Research shows that having to provide neutral descriptions of why people get races lessens the pay gap. Every successful idea raises the question, why hasn't someone done this before? When I pose the question to Margaret, she refers to the cultural environment. It's not a coincidence that we're an Icelandic company, she tells me. Iceland has always led the way in this regard. Gender equality is a topic that people of all genders in the country care about. The issue was on people's radar much sooner than in other countries. For Margaret, we're in a unique position to tackle inequality. We've never talked this much about diversity, inclusion and equity, and the regulation and legislations are being put into place to back it up. While pay analytics focus on financial equality, Empower Now offers a holistic DEI, that is, diversity, equity and inclusion, solution to develop people-friendly workplace cultures. This extends beyond finances to areas including employee experience, public perception, recruitment processes, parental leave, diversity, and team surveying. But the first step is to assess the current status. Seikin Jonsdottir is the CTO of Empower Now, and in her opinion, there is still much work to be done. The fact is that most workplaces can and should do better, she tells me. Once Empower Now has analyzed the situation and isolated the issues, they provide a solution to the challenges that come up, based on measuring, goal-setting and education. We offer micro-learning models on DEI topics that leave an impact. An easy example would be our short videos in mobile format that the employees can choose to watch anytime, so people gain perspective and education, which they can then apply in real life. Company founders Duck and Thore have been working as DEI consultants for years, but in-person consultation is impossible to scale up to an international level. The scalability comes in taking the process digital. Sikin explains further. If a scandal occurs, many issues can arise, from losing valuable employees due to completely preventable bias, to affecting bottom lines, like the company's stock tanking. Since Me Too, they've found that old-fashioned crisis management practices, like simply firing a CEO, don't necessarily repair their brand image or employee trust, nor correct behavior and prevent it from happening again. Issues of discrimination or bias are never down to one person. 
even if the issue stemmed from a single person, it is still down to culture. It becomes a scandal when it's not immediately handled and corrected properly. If something like this has been happening at your company, people know that it's an issue with the workplace culture. But companies are a little lost on how to correct issues when they arise and prevent them from happening in the first place, and that's where we come in. There aren't many men working in the gender equality business, and finding out that it was mostly women cleaning up misogynist messes was a glum start to my research. Seekin, however, has a more uplifting take. Often we get our foot in the door because a person who has experienced inequality gets us involved, but it's important to us that it doesn't fall on victims of discrimination to get the power now integrated into their workplace. Senior leaders who want to create equitable companies need to take action. The pressure is usually on groups who are the most vulnerable to bias to fix matters, which creates an unnecessary additional burden. But they also are often the greatest drivers of change. According to Sikin, it makes sense for those who are susceptible to discrimination to have a voice in fixing it. That shouldn't change, she tells me. But they can't be tasked with the responsibility of fixing these problems. People in a position of power should focus on being allies to those with less power and support their work. Sagan's optimism is only slightly dampened at the mention of the 1.1% figure. A recent study from Harvard Business Review shows that when pitching to VCs, men tend to get progressive questions focusing on potential gains, while women get more defensive questions focusing on risk and potential losses, she states. A progressive question might be something like, how do you plan to monetize this? While a similar defensive question would be, how long will it take you to break even? Interestingly, she adds that there doesn't seem to be a difference if it's a man or a woman posing the questions. A dearth of women presenting their ideas can also be explained by the state of the startup world. The startup scene has been known for its bro culture, and that's not a culture that supports DEI in any way. Empower Now is the rare instance when a women-led team gets funding based on an idea without presenting a ready-made prototype. Sigin tells me, usually teams have to be much further along in the product development to get an investment. I hope that with more funds being available at the very early stages of a company's development, that things might be changing. Unfortunately, I think, given the news in the last weeks about investments in women-led teams globally being down in 2022, it may only be an aberration. In her opinion, things are changing for the better, but she has to admit that the statistics don't support her optimism. Yet. Freya Thorarinsdottir is the founder of Gemma Q, an index which automatically rates publicly traded companies according to management diversity. The reason why investors should focus on companies dedicated to equality isn't just moral or ethical. According to Freya, investing in equality is good business. There's a correlation between diversity and an above-average profitability. Although we don't have evidence of causation, multiple studies have shown us that companies with greater representation of women in corporate leadership are more likely to outperform those with less diverse leadership. First and foremost, there's a marketing aspect to being able to state publicly that your fund is only investing in companies who've got it together when it comes to equality and to be able to back it up with data, Freya states. 
Before launching Gemaiku, she was with the Merrill Lynch Wealth Management Division of Bank of America in Seattle and the director and team leader at the Central Bank of Iceland. In addition to her degrees in law and political science, Freya received a master's in economic policy management from Columbia University. Her work in asset management showed her that besides wanting a return on their investment, clients wanted to know where their money went and if it was making a difference. While there was a distinct generational shift in client sense of responsibility, it's clear that pension funds, for example, are set on investing in a more responsible way, as are large national funds such as the Norwegian Oil Fund and Japanese pension funds. GemmaQ is a technical solution that gathers public information on companies' management diversity and monitors changes that would jeopardize it. Officially started in 2019, the project has earlier roots as Freya's research project at Columbia University. With 15 years of diversity data at her disposal, Freya explains that while things are looking up attitude-wise, the numbers are still bleak. Gender Lens, the Gemma Q Fortune 500 index, tracks the gender leadership balance among Fortune 500 companies. It shows that women represent only 10.2% of Fortune 500's company CEOs and just 6.6% of board chairs today. With five new women taking on CEO roles in January 2023, this is becoming a record year with women in leadership roles. In the U.S., legislation differs significantly by state. Some states have required gender quotas on company boards, while other companies are required to list their gender ratios publicly. In some states, however, there are no regulations at all. Even though there are differences between companies in the same sector depending on their location, we are seeing the same trend across states, Freya tells me. Women are being promoted at a far lower rate than to leadership roles than men. The rate of change is unacceptably slow. The business world doesn't exist in a bubble, and in spite of the recent explosion of the fintech sector, it is still run by humans, not robots. It's not enough to make sure the business world is paying people of all genders equally, providing a healthy environment and diversifying their management teams, if the pressure of housework and managing the home doubles women's workload when compared with men. That's how women get burnt out. According to Alma Dóra Ríkarsdóttir and Sigurlaug Guðrún Jóhannsdóttir, Heima app will not only lessen the workload in the home, but also make your relationship better. We believe the key to happy family life is to work well together and communicate well. We went with a software solution, a management tool that enables people to cooperate harmoniously, much like work management tools operate in the workplace. Data suggests that women do 75% of the housework worldwide, which negatively impacts their personal and professional development. Alma continues. The idea was inspired by my work as a specialist in gender equality in the Prime Ministry. We were mapping the major equality issues in Iceland and the world, and the unequal division of housework is a foundational issue. If we're going to have equal pay and equal opportunities, we need to start at home and make this right. When introducing their idea, Alma and Sigurlaug had to start at the very beginning, by explaining the concept of the mental load of managing housework, sometimes referred to as the third shift. 
the invisible managerial work in the home that's less tangible than simply washing the dishes or cleaning the floors. We're bringing that unseen work to the surface. In Iceland, WAFR, Iceland's largest trade union, launched a national campaign to introduce the idea to people. We do sometimes have to explain the concept of the mental load, especially when talking to people from outside of Iceland. It's becoming better known worldwide, but in Iceland everyone knows what it is, following VR's campaign. Before, we would have to introduce the concept to people doing user reviews. Now people bring it up in the first place, Alma says. While younger people are generally more excited about technological solutions, in the case of Heima, it makes perfect sense. We're focusing on younger people who might have young children. People who have been living together for decades have their own routine that they've settled with a partner and might not need disrupting. We're doing this for the people in the process of creating their housework division and setting their routine. People who want more equality, less hassle and more joy in the home. According to Alma, tension over housework is the third most common cause of divorce worldwide, so there's a lot to be gained. On the issue of finding funding, the developers behind Hema have received initial funding. Now they're marketing their concept to investors and developing their business plans for their second round. Alma is hesitant to make generalizations about the startup environment. What I can say is that I was working for the Ministry of Industry and Innovation, looking into funding for women, and what I found was that very often, when assessing the success of innovation projects, what's looked at are the results the successes, the companies that have made it through and been successful. And men are much more heavily represented. So if your idea of a perfect entrepreneur is Mark Zuckerberg, women will always be further from the goal than men. Startups are looking towards the future, trying to be the first to decipher what it may hold, being the first to introduce new solution and technology into our lives. But somehow, when it comes to business, they keep batting on the exact same type over and over again. They're trying to make you fit into a male entrepreneur cookie cutter instead of acknowledging that women bring different things to the table. I think that plays a part. Also, many fans talk a lot about the funnel problem, that the percentage of women who receive funding represent the percentage of women that approach them. But it has been demonstrated that funds who make an effort to highlight women and make sure women know about them and that they have access to them, have a higher proportion of women in their portfolio. So it's not a funnel problem, it's a question of accessibility. While funds are in the end only responsible for maximizing their turn on their investments, Alma maintains that the singular approach to finding projects likely to succeed is limiting their scope. We know that women tend to be more conservative in their estimations of success than men are. So instead of pushing them to create more unrealistic business plans, you could factor that into your calculations, while keeping in mind that men's goals are likely to be unattainable. Finally, the women behind Tema aren't afraid to state that they're not doing this just to serve their ideals. We're not afraid to say that this is a for-profit company. We intend to give our investors a return on their investment. We want to find a way to get our solution to as many people as possible. That's how they make their mark. With money, you can scale up, you can enter more markets, introduce your solutions to more people and have a bigger effect. We can give our app right now to 1,000 people on our mailing list and that would have an effect, but we could also try to get it to a million people in two years and that will have a bigger impact. 
Well, thank you for that, Greta. Um, to begin with, uh, maybe tell us why you decided to write this article at this time. Well, I heard about a couple of the companies um, that I, uh, or the or the companies wh- whose founders I interviewed, um, and obviously I was interested because it's uh, there's are exciting pros- projects and you know great ideas. Uh, then, unfortunately, during my research process, um, I just kept running into bad news, which made it all the more important for me to finish the article and, and write about this. Because I don't think a lot of people realize just how we all try to be positive. And we all try to think of ourselves as, as being without prejudice when it comes to gender. and uh, But the numbers are bleak. Yeah, I think that's one of the more interesting points um, made in the article is that all of these female entrepreneurs are very optimistic and very driven, but then you, as the author, refer again and again to these bleak statistics. Um, what about you? What do, what do you feel on this point? Are you optimistic or uh, after having delved into the research and spoken to these people? Uh, in a way, because, like I said, attitudes definitely are changing. And we're seeing, um, and they all mentioned that just since they started their projects, they've seen the discussion change, especially after Me Too, for the ones that started before that. Um, and they've seen legislation and regulations being introduced that make it easier for um, companies to reach uh, equality and become more people-friendly workplaces, not just for women, but for people of different minorities as well. But every time I get back to those numbers, it kind of gets me down because uh, they're not improving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting as well in sort of the larger context of Iceland's image. I mean, Iceland is often touted as the best place to live and work as a woman we had the first female president democratically elected. We had the first openly gay prime minister. Um, and then there, there's this feeling among, I guess, especially foreigners, that this is some kind of gender utopia that we've created here. Um, did, did reporting on this article change or alter your view on this image that we have? The thing is that images are... Uh are black and white, they're stereotypes, they're uh, cliches that they throw around. And they're not without truth. I mean, I, th- I think Iceland is a great place to be a woman, but it's not perfect. No place is. Um, and, you know, when people bring up, uh, you know, the qualities Iceland society has when it comes to gender equality, they're not wrong. But no... Or I think you hear very few women in Iceland talk saying that Iceland is a perfect place to be a woman. There's no such place. I mean, life's difficult everywhere, and it's not perfect in Iceland, but it is. Like Margaret mentions, it, it is a place where we talk about the issues, and we acknowledge them, and we discuss what sort of solutions we could find. And and like she mentioned, that's how um, you get this conversation started that leads to solutions like her uh, pay equality company. Yeah, and and speaking of Margaret and, and 
her company um, prior to this interview. We, we, you mentioned briefly this initiative that Islandsbanki, um, one of Iceland's three commercial banks, uh, wanted to undertake to sort of close the gender pay gap. Um, and, and I guess they made a lot of announcements and bandied about a lot of fancy words, but uh, nothing really of practical came of it. Can you speak to that process? Well, yes. Like I mentioned in the article, that was the uh, basis of her company, was that uh, the bank had realized that there was a problem. And that's the first thing, realizing that there is an issue, that they had the pay gap. And she was speaking to uh, someone who worked there, uh, and he was telling her that they just didn't have a way to like they just didn't know how to fix it because they tried to, they tried to uh, make reports and and policies and and were, you know, invested in uh, implementing gender equality in their hiring decisions, but it just didn't am- turn into anything. They didn't have an effect, any real effect on the numbers until they uh, got someone to do something about it. They um, relied on the impartial data to um, fix it. Yeah, and, and that's when Margaret comes in. And uh, are you? do you know how how well that project has gone since Margaret became involved or they began imp- implementing her software and ideas? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, according to Margaret, they, uh, the project was a rousing success. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Enough for her to be able to um, make it into her uh, company. Right. It's now gone international. Exactly, yeah. And and I, I've been fascinated myself by this idea of um, like the flight checklist that um, airline pilots use before taking off. Um, it seems like such a simple thing to do and something that should be translated into sort of all aspects of our personal and, and professional lives. This just very basic idea of running through a checklist um, com- and using data to sort of figure out, okay, he, this is what we're doing. For example, when it comes to the hiring of employees and making sure that we're checking all those boxes that are contributing to favorable outcomes. And uh, it seems like from your article that this sort of thinking has become, um, I mean, more sort of popular and and accepted in in various fields. Um, I'm interested in, in, um, I mean, do do you think this is a a practical solution for all companies to to adopt these kind of software and tech to help us? Well, basically, there's no like one solution fits all for everyone, um, as there are different uh, companies of different sizes. But what I found interesting is that for a lot of these women, the first step was just to have the numbers, like to recognize the issue in front of them, whether it was the pay gap or if it was um, promotions um, or... uh, you know, the number of or the amount of housework and managerial work done by women in the home. It's just you need to know what the situation is and correctly access it uh, with preferably impartial data before you can start to do something about it. And we all have biases. I mean, we are human. We all have prejudices. We can't 
that's just a fact we can't ignore that we've grown up in a in a world that is built in a certain way and and that's shaped us but we can try to uh eliminate that from our decision making we can try to focus on the numbers in front of us yeah i, I like that there's um a quote that i really like which is something along the lines of um if you can't measure it you can't change it mm-hmm. and it seems like one of my takeaways from your article is that you know we we've, we've been trying to change things without measuring them um basically trying to influence gender pay gap and, and other um related issues just by talking about them but not necessarily implementing a kind of scientific approach um and another thing that i found really interesting was um the hema app that you discussed uh during the end of your article and um one of the things that you um noted was this idea of the third shift which um has become pretty ingrained in Iceland but as you noted maybe not as well known um in other places and yeah it's more commonly referred to as the mental load of housework in uh, english speaking countries and that's exactly the thing that um when they were starting out and it's this thing i think that a lot of women have you know talked to their friends about it causes issues in the relationship it uh, makes them it increases their workload over the course of a day leaving them less room to you know develop professionally when they have to um essentially man it's not just do the housework in their home but manage it as well they have to you know remember everyone's birthdays not just for their in their own family but also in their husbands they have to know what their mother-in-law wants to get for christmas they have to you know remember when it's pajama day at the kindergarten and they have to just remember all these million little details and make sure everyone is organized um and i think that's something that a lot of uh a lot of people obviously but a lot of women recognize that falls disproportionately on women and it's but you need terms like this to be able to introduce them to people that maybe aren't uh don't recognize that the difficulties that this causes so they mentioned that uh they participated in uh, a labor unions campaign um the founders of the Hemap to introduce the concept of the third shift here in Iceland and as soon as the campaign went out it's it was something that people recognized in their own lives and it was good to have a word for it to have a concept for it and once you have that once you recognize that it's an issue that's because it's a, it's something that a lot of them know is an issue but no maybe some men don't rec- don't really recognize it as an issue they may say you know i participate in housework i i come home and ask my woman ask my <laughs> sorry ask my uh wife what i can do right and then i do it and that's how i participate but the work is knowing what needs to be done and keeping tabs on everyone exactly. and family yeah and i i confessed uh, prior to the interview that um I wasn't sure how practical the hema app would be whether I would be the type of person who would be you know wanting to consult an app uh, regarding housework and and the third shift and, and then you retorted uh, maybe well, your wife would yes <laughs> <laughs> and I think because I wrote an article on mental health earlier this year where um a psychologist called Steinen 
uh, uh, also mentioned the third shift, and I um, I had to admit that I hadn't heard of the concept mm. before, and that led me to sort of view my contribution to the household through that prism. And I actually just, I think last week, I um, I sort of caught myself being guilty of sort of, I don't know, I of course feel that I contribute very heartily to the house, housework. You know, I vacuum and I mm-hmm. I uh, dress the kids and I, I'll, I'll do the dishes and everything. But then there are these sort of smaller things that, I don't know, you automatically think, oh, this is something for my wife to tackle. For example, our younger son, he has like a, it's called, uh, he has this sort of rash and dry skin, and my wife has been noting, well, maybe this is something that we need to check out. And then I said, yeah, uh, you know, I was looking, like uh, helping, helping him in the shower or something, and I was like, oh, yeah, we really need to check this out. And that was the extent of my contribution mm. until I realized, wait, I can call the doctor and I can schedule an appointment, but this is like something that she does almost all of the time. Like all of these things like, oh, I think his shoes are getting a little big. Yeah, making big, the decisions. Making the decisions and, yeah. and it's these details that you don't realize they're incredibly draining and, and um, it makes sense that this would contribute to burnout among women, especially if they're trying to balance their home life with their professional life. Yeah. I saw a guy on TikTok uh, talking about an easy way to where he had apparently realized that he was putting an ex- extra workload on on his wife. Uh, just framing the questions he posed to his wife differently. So instead of saying, hey, uh, you know, our son's a rush. What do you think we should do about it? He would say, hey, I noticed our, our kid has a rush. Uh, I think I'm going to uh, call a doctor tomorrow. Do you have an, any objection? Right. Just like making that, taking that extra step in the <laughs> process to figure out the solution and then asking if she agrees rather than asking her for the solution. Right. And that's one thing. Another thing I found while I was writing the article that, you know, originally I wanted to have equal proportions of men and women um, and the people I, I uh, spoke to, but there weren't any... Well, there were obviously some men on boards of the companies, but the founders of the companies were mostly women. And at first I was kind of, like I said, I wanted to have equal gender, because I think we definitely need to include men in the conversation. That's that's how you get stuff done. You get everyone to the table, not just have the population. (laughs) Right. right. And, um, but as Seekin mentioned, uh, CTO of Empower Now, was that uh, you you can see it in this way that it's women that's having have constantly having to clean up the mess and this is just you know one more part of the third shift that their uh, startup companies are focused on right. fixing gender equality instead of you know fixing something else or, or coming up with some other ideas but also that these are the people who you know uh, benefit from this situation, uh, finding or from us finding a balance in the situation, and you wouldn't really want that solution to come from the group that is in power. Yeah, right. So that made sense to me. Yeah, and also you cited some statistics saying that actually companies that are more gender equal have uh, more women on the boards, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, women-led companies as far as C- the CEO position is concerned, are actually 
more profitable and and do better yeah, statistically speaking yeah so i mean it I, makes sense if if you have to go through all that extra work to get your idea across that right it'd be a damn good idea once you're <laughs> <laughs> excuse the language right um well thank you for that if there's anything that you'd like to add uh, uh any women out there with a great idea for a startup i, I don't even know if i'd you know push people to go into it because it's such a such a difficult process like it's so much more work yeah but like if you're up for it please <laughs> go out there do it and on that note of optimism <laughs> um, we conclude our interview thank you Greta Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland covering community nature and culture if you enjoyed listening Please consider subscribing to Ice on Review at our website.